2020 marks the 50th birthday of Griffin Theatre Company's home, the SBW Stables Theatre. I'm Angela Caterns. Join us as we celebrate the anniversary in this special series of podcasts in which we hear about the theatre's history and talk to some of the country's most celebrated artists. Declan Green is the new artistic director of Griffin Theatre Company. He took the reins from Lee Lewis in March 2020. He's known for his provocative work as both director and writer, but just weeks into beginning his new position with the company, the coronavirus pandemic forced the closure of live events and theatre venues across Australia. Welcome to our 50th anniversary podcast series, Declan. Hi, thanks for having me. Are you excited to be here at the beginning of Griffin's next 50 years? I am incredibly excited. I think in terms of that intro as well, I don't think I could have had a more provocative beginning to this year. <laughs> Did you doubt your choice? Did you think it could be a, you know, because four weeks after starting as the new artistic director, COVID-19 happened, that must have been very challenging. Do you think, oh no, it's a sign? Yeah, a little bit. I was so excited about getting the job and starting at Griffin, but I have, of course, had a lot of anxieties about taking it on. It's a massive responsibility. It's such an important company in terms of Australian theatre. So, yeah, I was definitely feeling anxiety about that. And then when everything started kind of going to hell in a handbasket, I was like, oh, no, is this just like a <laughs> some kind of great cosmic sign letting me know that, <laughs> that this was a, a terrible idea? But I've since parceled up those thoughts and put them away and kind of got down to the business of just, yeah, trying to help steer the company through all of this. And so obviously it was, it's was it been challenging for Griffin. What did you decide about how to proceed during COVID-19? It became really important to me during this time of crisis that we really dig down deep into the values of the company and in terms of the things we prioritise and the things that we keep safe and I was pretty lucky in the sense that uh, that was something I had a really strong backing from the whole staff and board of the company in in doing because, again, being very, very new to the company, I needed a lot of guidance and a lot of hand-holding, especially when, when I kind of started out. So when I think we had the first kind of crisis meeting of the board, um, the general consensus was that the first thing we had to do was really prioritise freelance artists because pre-JobKeeper, they were the people who seemed like they were in the greatest you know, jeopardy and crisis, even compared to uh, a lot of the organisations that were also in a state of panic at the time. So that became the first thing we did. We, we looked at on cancelled shows, um, how we would honour artist contracts. And, and I guess also just how we would continue trying to create opportunities for employment while the theatre was closed, which is the next kind of major thing we did. We forged a partnership with Google and ran a program called uh, Lock-In, where we commissioned a bunch of artists to respond to conditions of social distancing and create new live work for the online space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, they were the kind of the first things we did. And then um, once the initial panic of everything and the initial kind of rush and adrenaline of just trying to stay afloat <laughs> kind of starting to dissipate, then it just became about what we were going to do in the longer term and what we were going to plan for in 2021. And so, Declan, tell us a little bit about what drives you to do a job like this. It's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've read, um, for instance, that you, um, you know, basically, you know, bottom line, you want to change the world. <laughs> Can you do that at the helm of a small Australian theatre company? I mean, 
I'm totally an idealist and I believe in the transformative potential of story and of art. I'm, I'm not an idealist to the extent that I think that anybody is going to go into a theatre and sit down and come out a completely changed person or have their ideals completely realigned in an hour and a half of watching some um, people talking on a stage. But I do think you can sow seeds and I think that you can um, raise really important social questions in a theatre space. And I think sometimes some of those really important questions are raised just through the act of community that, that are built around theatres in every city, which is also to say I think that the localization of theatre is really, really important. And I think that's one of the things that kind of drives me as well in an increasingly uh, mediatized world where um, it feels like there's a huge centralization of film and TV, especially across various stream- streaming platforms. It feels to me really important that theatre can tell local stories and stories that speak to the immediacy of who we are and the places that these theatres are literally located. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that I think that theatre can give a really kind of, um, yeah, it can really kind of take the temperature of a culture at any specific time and also very importantly leaves a record of that <laughs> in the sense of um, work being published and written about and spoken about in years to come. So I think, yeah, theatre also really provides a really important yardstick for how far we've come and sometimes how far we haven't come for mm. people in the future. And Declan, you were previously based in Melbourne. Did you relish the chance to live and work in Sydney? I was really happy in Melbourne. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> like I was pretty settled there. I had my little house in Brunswick West. My partner lives in Melbourne. So I was, to be honest, no, not at all. I was not excited about moving to Sydney in the slightest, but I was incredibly excited about working at Griffin and getting to make work for Griffin's audience. So I think about that as... Yeah, something I really plant as like, this is how much (laughs) I care about the company and this is how much I want to make work for Griffin's audiences. Oh, that's fantastic. And so tell us a bit about uh, what your association was with the Griffin before you got the gig. So my kind of association with Griffin started when um, I was doing a show in a backyard shed in Thornbury in um, the suburbs of Melbourne. It was called Summertime in the Garden of Eden and it was produced by this queer theatre company that I co-run and with my friend Ash Flanders, we do very draggy, ridiculous DIY queer theatre. This is the Sisters Grimm. Yes, Sisters Grimm, yeah. So, yeah, we were doing this show called Summertime in the Garden of Eden and uh, Lee Lewis, my predecessor, came to see the show and then afterwards said, I'd love you to take, like, come to Griffin with this show, bring it up to pack all your trash into a suitcase and <laughs> bring it up and put it on my stage. And we did. So the next year we went up and presented Summertime in the Garden of Eden as part of Griffin Independent, which was my first opportunity to share work with with Griffin's audience. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was the next year, Lee, in her first year as artistic director, produced my play A Gigabytes of Hardcore Pornography. She um, directed it herself in her first season. So that was the second show I had there. And then the year after that, I did a show, I directed a show, uh, again, as part of Griffin Independent called The Unspoken Word is Joe by Zoe Dawson. And then uh, I didn't do anything the the next year. And the year after that, um, Lee again directed my, another one of my plays, The Homosexuals or Faggots. So I think it's four plays that I've got to do in at, at Griffin at this point. Right. So you had quite a bit of a history with the plays. Yeah, exactly. And... A really great history. Like every time I've done a show at Griffin, it's been a really, really excellent time. My work always seeks to be like 
entertaining. That's super, super important to me. I don't make austere work or work that seeks to be admired at a distance or anything like that. But there's definitely been times at other larger theatre companies where uh, it hasn't gone down as well sometimes. <laughs> I think because it can be seen as a bit silly or a bit frivolous to some audiences, but Griffin audiences have always been really up for it. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things I've always really loved about the company is I think that uh, it really does have an audience who are deeply curious and are really willing to lean into the work and take a risk and put trust in artists and trust that that will be rewarded. Mm. Well, you mentioned risks there, and I know that you describe yourself as a bit of a risk taker. What do you mean by that? It's funny. I don't think I ever really describe myself as a risk risk taker. I think that's often a a word that gets associated with the stuff that I do. Just because it's unconventional? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I guess that um, I'm always trying to test something and I'm trying to do something new generally and um, create a different experience in whatever theatre I'm working in. But I always do it, I guess, at least in my own mind, thinking that people are going to love it and people are really going to go enjoy it. So in my head, it never feels like a risk because I'm going, I, I don't do something unless I'm pretty confident that I think it's going to land well with an audience. Sometimes I'm wrong. But uh, yeah, it's never done in the sense of like, like, oh man, this, this might really mess with them or something like that. It's, it's something in front of that. And so Declan, I, I read somewhere, maybe this is wrong, but that you wouldn't want to be artistic director of any other theatre company in Australia. Mm. Is that right? Because I make new Australian work. That's all I make. That's all I've ever made. As a director, as a playwright and as a dramaturg, I've never done a Shakespeare. I've never done a Tennessee Williams or anything like that. And I've never had any desire to at all. And I know that if you are the artistic director of a, <laughs> of pretty much any other theatre company in Australia, that's what you're expected to do. Because there is a, um, there is a maybe slightly dated at this point, but a perception that those are the pillars that support your seasons in theatre companies that, and that new Australian work is always a, yeah, quote unquote risk. But I see that as the most vital and the most important work that any theatre company does. Yeah, that's really why I'd only want to, yeah, why I'd only want to Helm Griffin because obviously that's the only thing I get to do there. Is it popular with the audience though? Will it, will it, you know, make dollars? Will it make money? Yeah, I think it, I think it does. I think it does make dollars. Like over the last decade, I think we saw this appetite that was there for canonical adaptations for people doing refitted versions of things like Ibsen and Chekhov and a resurgence of that like 19th century European work on our stages and there was some really great work that was made in that time but I think there was a rhetoric that also emerged around the idea that Australian writing in seasons was a riskier proposition but I think that's really been pushed aside now when you see companies like STC and like Belvoir and Malthouse in Melbourne all really picking up a lot more Australian work to put on their stages and particularly for bigger companies like that that are really driven by box office like that's why <laughs> like I think I think that's proof in the pudding right there yeah and I while I think it's great that companies are, are doing that and that that's happening at the moment I think it's also really important that we're not driven by programming trends in that way yeah, we will continue to be a uh, new Australian writing company kind of no matter what. So, Declan, can you describe for us your actual role at Griffin? Will you continue to write and direct? Yes, definitely. So I'll be directing plays in the season every year. I don't know that I'm going to be doing much writing for the Griffin stage. One, because the job is very all-consuming, as you can imagine, and playwriting takes up a great deal of time. Also, I've 
not entirely sure yet about the um the idea of programming my own work. <laughs> I mean, every slot on in on Griffin stage is so precious. We we don't do that many plays a year, and I I, I think the idea of just deciding to award one <laughs> to myself feels a bit gross to me. That said, somebody might be listening back to this in three years' time and be like, uh, you've um put on three of your own plays. <laughs> I hope I don't do that, but I can't speak for my future self. Yeah, and I'm also doing a lot of dramaturgy, which is, for people who don't know, is like a script editor for theatre, which is my other discipline. But it's a little bit more than that as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it can is. You, can you describe what that role encompasses? Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is just working very closely with a playwright over the development of their work and effectively giving them feedback, asking them questions or creating t- different types of provocation that help them make their work clearer or uh, help them to better articulate on the page um, what they want to do with the project or their Mm -hmm. ambitions for it. Mm -hmm. And then once you get into the rehearsal room, the role of the dramaturg shifts a little bit and you become almost um, an intermediary between the director and the playwright and also the audience, who is the other really important relationship that the dramaturg has through the entire process, not just the rehearsal room, but you're also advocating for the position of the audience the entire time and going... Yeah, what what is going to be transparent to these people? What are people? How are people going to engage with this story? How will this story carry them, or keep them held, or bring them to a particular understanding? It's a strangely fluid role, and it is a little bit difficult to define sometimes when you talk to people about what you do as a dramaturg. But um, it's really essential to the creation of theatre, and really, I think, essential to the creation of um, new writing, especially. Mm. So what do you like about the actual theatre, that little space, the home of Griffin? I mean, it feels a bit weird to say at a time of social distancing, but the intimacy, (laughs) the intimacy um, up until February this year, I think was the thing that I loved the most about the stables. The fact that uh, you have such incredible proximity to the performers and you really get to watch their craft in really exquisite detail. I think that's really special and really important. I also love the experience of it like i love the congregation the foyer the walk upstairs and the fact that every time you look at the space in all its bizarre wonky imperfection there's always been this huge feat of imagination that's taken this space on and done something new with this (laughs) deeply unconventional environment every single time I also love and loathe as a playwright the fact that the audience are so inescapably there for the entire show. Like one of the reasons I think that so much incredible, incredible writing has come out of the stables historically is because as a playwright, you literally have to sit there on one side of that space and watch an audience react to your work in real time. And it can be, oh my God, (laughs) it can be sometimes so punishing. (laughs) Like you can can sit there, you know, in, in your own audience bank and watch an entire wall of people slowly switch off at the same time to a particular scene in a play that you thought was really going to work and was really going to slay and really land. And which means, but it's also great because that means that, yeah, that's the thing that you go and fix for the next preview. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know immediately. But on, on the flip side, when something works, it's euphoric. Like you watch people just light up at the same time. You watch everybody lean forward at the same time. Yeah, it's it's a space where there's nothing to hide and I think that's one of the reasons why it's produced so much exceptional work. Yeah. So why do you think it's important in the theatre landscape of Australia? I think it's important because, um, like I said before, it's bound by this responsibility to exclusively produce new Australian work that um, there's a permanence about that mission that that is unwavering 
uh, it's never going to be driven by programming fads. We will always do <laughs> new Australian writing. There, this will always be a space for that, no matter what. And I think that that's why it's the home of new Australian plays and Australia playwrights. It's, it's a promise to every playwright in Australia that there will always be somewhere for your work. And I think it's also really important that it's small, that it's a 105-seat theatre, which means that it's not driven by major box office imperatives in the way that other theatre companies are, which means that we are probably the theatre company most equipped to take chances on artists who don't have a huge track record yet. And that's historically been a really important part of Griffin, that some of Australia's most now kind of senior and established playwrights and actors and directors all got their start at Griffin. And I think that that's something that I'm really determined to maintain in terms of the importance of the space, especially as there are more government imperatives around arts companies justifying themselves through lack of risk or, or creating more um, positions of certainty. So tell us, Declan, what are your plans for the 2021 season? My plans in general are to <laughs> try and figure out a way that we can do some theatre. <laughs> <laughs> Like that'd be nice. <laughs> that's been um, yeah. That I mean, that's really been the major thing this year. I mean, the, it, trying to plan for next year has felt like it's trying to just build a house on sand or on quicksand, <laughs> because every time we would lay some kind of foundation, things would change, and we were suddenly unsure about whether this were this project is something we can actually get across the line, or whether there's obviously been huge questions just about the use of the stables in general that we've had, because um. Under the four square metre social distancing regulation that we've been living with for the past few months, that's meant a capacity of 22 people in the stables, including actors, which means it's not actually really viable to do no. shows there. And all the stuff that we love about the space and the things that people associate with it, intimacy and um, cramming up in close to one another in the foyer with a drink in hand and showering each other with spittle isn't really as inviting anymore. <laughs> so... Yeah, we've just had to do a lot of planning around um, what we think we can actually deliver safely to our audiences. Also knowing that they've really had a hell of a year, especially theatre lovers in Sydney have had shows moved around, shows cancelled, especially Griffin have been incredibly generous in not only understanding that, but also actually continuing to support the company through that as well. We had an incredibly, incredibly high number of people who donated back the value of their tickets in this year, um, far higher than any other theatre company in Sydney, which so. is really moving and I think says a lot about the community around that theatre and the love for the space. In a perfect world, what are your plans for the 2021 <laughs> season? <laughs> it felt really important to me next year to put stuff on stage that feels hopeful. And that hasn't been about thinking about, you know, putting fluff on stage or putting things that feel like they are insubstantial or things that are purely escapist because we know historically that that's not what Griffin audiences want. Mm -hmm. I think that's also one of the things that I really love about the companies that a lot of the works that you would consider for a lot of companies, other companies would be the riskiest propositions in seasons, shows like The Bleeding Tree and Kill Climate Deniers. And um, my own play, The Homosexuals, are all the shows that when I looked back on our box office records are actually our highest sellers, which I think is beautiful <laughs> and uh, kind of extraordinary. So, yeah, it felt like it was important to continue that tradition and continue that vein, looking at work that does engage deeply with the kind of uh, questions and, and complexities of the world we see around us, but also uh, offer 
yeah, hope and optimism, which feels like a radical and important thing to do right now. Mm-hmm. And so can you be um, specific and tell us perhaps about one or two shows that you're really excited about? So one of the shows I'm really excited about is Orange Thrower by Kirsty Merlier. It's a show that's set in a Perth suburb called Paradise, and it's about a young woman called Zadie whose parents have gone back to South Africa to visit family. And while they are away, someone in the suburb starts throwing oranges in their house at night, starts doing these acts of uh, vandalism that start really... Which, which on the surface seem really innocuous, but gradually over time begin to pressurise her and cause her to crack, just not knowing why it's happening and there being a whole host of questions about racial violence that are kicked off by this act. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I love the play because, again, it feels like, uh, particularly at the time we're in in uh, history, it asks some really important questions about what is recognisable as racial aggression in a in a country like Australia, but uh, the experience of the play is essentially like a quintessential coming-of-age story. <laughs> it, it, it's set in the heat of a hot summer and is kind of laden with unrequited crushes and daggy family histories. And yeah, there's a there's something really beautiful and euphoric about the play as well that it releases. It's also extremely, extremely funny. And also it's Kirsty's first play. And she's performing in it as well, which feels, again, incredibly important to me in terms of what Griffin is here for. Orange thrower. Yes. Fantastic. And then there's the outdoor one. Tell us about that one, Declan. So this is another main stage debut by another early career writer, Elias Jameson Brown. It's a play about a a grinder hookup that happens between two men, one older and one younger in the setting sun of uh, Green Park, which is incredibly important historical site in terms of Sydney's queer history. The famous wall is opposite Green Park, which is where for years male sex workers would ply their trade. And also the toilet block in the Green Park was a very famous beat for decades, decades, this space of kind of anonymous gay male sex at all hours of the day. Um, so much so, actually, that when <laughs> when it was pulled down, I think in 1988, uh, at request by um, the New South Wales Police, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, like a bunch of drag queen nuns, held a vigil for a, and established a shrine around a chunk of the urinal that was taken out, <laughs> taken out of the place. <laughs> so it's this deeply beautiful site of Sydney's queer history. But, of course, a lot of queer history isn't normally recorded, <laughs> at least in any mainstream sense. So, But often it felt, the history of these, these spaces is kind of um, felt by the community. And I think that's one of the really beautiful things about Elias's play is it's about how these decades of history between these two men who are re- meeting for one reason in this very historical site actually in odd, unconscious ways end up pulling them together and pushing them apart in a really um, knotty and complex, almost psychosexual drama. Uh, One of the things that really excites me about this play is that we are, yeah, we're not bringing Green Park into the stables. We're actually taking the stables to Green Park. The audience will meet in the park. They'll be wearing wireless headsets and the actors will be um, mic'd. So we're not closing off the park at all either. So there'll be joggers and dog walkers all going (laughs) about their businesses. These two quite innocuous looking men sit on a bench and just have a conversation that our audience will be able to eavesdrop on in a way. Fantastic. That sounds great, Declan. So tell us about another play that you hope to stage in 2021. So one of the other ones I'm really excited about because it's 
pretty different for Griffin is a play called Pleasure Dome, which is being created by um, Xanthi Dobby and Harriet Gillies. It's a play that's about Ted Nelson, who is a iconic philosopher and tech pioneer who created some of the founding concepts of the internet. He created the, the idea of hypertext. And uh, he's 83 years old now, and his uh, hope, I think, in the 70s when he created some of these concepts was that the internet would be this space of great knowledge sharing that would tear down barriers between people and create this great global connection and consciousness that would evolve us as a species and make us better. And then, of course, the opposite has happened and the internet is just full of 5G conspiracy theories and wonderful things as well. But it's in a lot of ways ended up becoming this heavily commodified representation of a particular deeply capitalist nightmare. So Xanthi Dobby and Harriet Gillies, these two um, performance artists, have created this show that's about an attempt to reclaim the radical potential of the internet. Mm-hmm. And they've done so by staging a show that's on the internet. So it's actually not happening in the stables at all. People, um, Griffin's audience, will just log into it, <laughs> onto the show in their home. And, yeah, engaging this experience that's very playful, that has interactive elements to it, but that's all about a type of group connection and an attempt at kind of togetherness, even while we're radically apart, which feels like, to me, it chimes with some of the good that's come of COVID, which has just been, the, I think, that there has been a... um. Yeah, a sense of social responsibility about some of our most vulnerable people and a sense of, uh, you know, there have been more efforts made, I think, to connect with one another kind of socially. And what's that called? Pleasure Dome. Also, how that connection happens is pretty special and pretty wild (laughs) um, because Ted Nelson, um, in addition to creating hypertext, was also the creator of a concept called teledildonics which is basically the invention of internet-controlled or remotely-operated sex toys. Um, so he was the inventor of the remote controlled dildo. Dildo. Oh my dear. Remote so, control. So um, that becomes a very important part of the show as well. Yeah, it really takes advantage of the fact that really you can wear anything you want while you're watching this show. <laughs> okay. It's very relaxed performance. Excellent. So Declan, you know, big picture now. I'm not sure how long your tenure is as artistic director, but what are your wider ambitions for the Griffin? I think there's a lot of pressure on small companies to conflate ambition with scale and the idea that we should be making bigger work or that we should be making, particularly for a company like Griffin, that we should be making work outside the stables and taking on larger venues and things like that. That's not of great interest to me. I think there's other companies in Australia who do that really, really well, and I'm very happy for them. But (laughs) for me, that's not the important thing about Griffin. The important thing about Griffin is that it's small and it's intimate. So I'm not interested in the work on our stage getting bigger, but I'm interested in it, in going deeper into it. So my ambitions are things like, I, I want us to be commissioning more plays. I want us to be workshopping those plays really, really deeply and intensively and having the resource to do that. So these aren't things that necessarily to our audience will be super visible in terms of, you know, public facing stuff that we're doing as a company. But I really want to see it, I guess, just um, reflected in the types of experiences we're offering in the theatre and just how ready our work feels when it's reaching on the stage, which has been a challenge for us over the last few years since we lost a big chunk of our major funding we haven't been able to commission and we haven't been able to develop and the work has remained really really high quality but but sometimes that's you know been by the seat of our pants and that's not the experience that I want playwrights and artists to have at Griffin I want them to have 
time and I want to have them to have space and I want them to have fair financial remuneration to kind of practice their craft and make their work as wonderful as it can be. I'm also really interested while I'm at Griffin to really think about definitions of what new Australian writing is as well and thinking about, I mean, Pleasure Dome is kind of a great example of that, the show I was talking about before. It, um, it's on a play that has begun with text. It's a work that's been created by a bunch of artists and it's been created in this deeply unconventional online space. It's new Australian writing. It absolutely is new Australian writing. Uh, text is core to it and also it is another type of text, <laughs> it, which I think recognises the fluidity of the way we uh, recognise and engage with text in our day-to-day lives as well. I often say when I'm talking to um, to students that if you open up your phone and look at a friend and open up your um, text messages, you can scroll back and you've got a script there for your relationship that will sometimes chart years and you can watch the evolution of your life laid out in text form. And there's something really beautiful about that as an archive or a way that we document our lives now. Yeah, so I'm really interested in looking at different types of writing that are... Yeah, like digital forms of writing, but also just things like cabaret and live music and dance and things like that. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, other kind of ways you can, you can approach Australian writing. I think also it's really important to me that as a new writing company and a company that seeks to represent an Australian voice, that there is a plurality to the stories that we have on our stage. There is no singular Australian story. There is no singular Australian identity. And that uh, there are so many different uh, cultures and communities that make up what an Australian story is and that Griffin should really be giving voice to that and recognising that. It's really important to me that the space, uh, the stable stage feels like it's an inclusive space and it's a space that audiences of any community can come to and feel confident that they will get to see a version of their own story in their own life on stage. Fantastic. Declan, it's been a pleasure and a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. For more information, head to Griffin's website, griffintheatre.com.au.